Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. This is episode six. I am Evan Ratliff of Atavist, and I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Long Form. Hey! Hey there. I'm going to do a different kind of hey on every episode. You shouldn't whistle anymore. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't pick up Yeah, that one well. sounds weird. Um, this week, Max, uh, actually, earlier this summer, you went to San Francisco and did this interview? Yeah, I was there in July and, uh, and called Mac McClelland and went and talked to Mac McClelland, who's the human rights reporter at Mother Jones. And it being July, uh, we didn't quite have our recording game totally together yet. So Mac sounds great. I am inaudible at times, but I think, you know. Coming in 2014, we're going to have a really great sound. (laughs) Yeah. One day we'll figure this out. It's not a product of it being July, though. It's actually... It's a product of it having been a time no, when all we didn't recordings, know how to record any, anything. Anyone who recorded anything in July was terrible. It yeah. could be true. No, it, it black was cloud us. hanging over America. <laughs> American <laughs> podcasting. Um, anyway, Mac McMillan. First story I ever wrote, I wrote in my head. And I actually write huge chunks of my features that you would read. I write huge chunks of them in my head for like hours and then I just and I memorize them and then I write them out. Really? I don't know why I just told you that. But when I was five, when I was like five years old, I was on a trip in... Does it take a long time to memorize them? No, that's automatic. You just, you just have to. I can Yeah, I can memorize like large amounts of stuff in, in a row. I can, I can memorize probably three paragraphs or something, you know, like in a row, and then I just write the sentences out. But so I was doing that when I was five, walking down a beach, and I was writing this story in my head about this little girl who drowns herself in the ocean, because I was, you know, walking next to the ocean, she drowns herself in the ocean because she has terminal cancer, and she can't watch her family suffer anymore and she's about to die so she just like drowns herself and I actually got lost because I walked for so long I walked so far away from my parents that I couldn't find them again when I turned around and they had to get a search party it was a big deal actually I thought I was never gonna see my parents again so you write your magazine features in your head that's what you're telling me I write the pieces of them uh yeah I actually never asked anybody else how they do it so I don't know if that's not normal, but I actually I do write the pieces in my head before. Like, I write my lead in my head. Yeah. Like, my entire lead exists sentence by sentence and word for word in my brain as a memorized chunk before I sit down to write it. Same with the ending. Right. And then... And when you sit down that first time, do you know the beginning and the end? Yeah. Yes. I only started a story... It's not very often that I start stories and I don't know how they're going to end. I did... Um, the Uganda feature that I did, actually, I wasn't totally sure 
where that was going to end when I sat down. And I, but I mean, when I say how it's going to end, I mean the sentence. I know the like the actual not, sentence. Not and if where. I don't know the actual sentence, like I'm lost. <laughs> and so the, the Uganda piece was actually really hard to write because I couldn't figure out what the sentence was that it ended on. So do you remember the first time that you took one of those stories out of your head and put it down on paper? Yeah, you know, in the Catholic school that I went to, we had we had to write a book every year. Really? Yeah, which now that I'm saying that out loud does sound really weird. So it, it makes doesn't sound sense weird. That it sounds that hugely ambitious. Who does that? Well, I mean, you're <laughs> sick, so it doesn't have to be, you know. I mean, it doesn't have to be a good book. Well, it doesn't have to be super, super long, but we had to write a book every year. I still have some of them, and the first one that I can remember was about a girl. Actually, the very first one that I ever wrote, and it is handbound, and on my bookshelf over there, is called Fox and His Friends, and it's about a fox that makes friends with a mouse named Sam. I drew, do, I illustrated it terminal cancer? as well. No, nobody dies. And actually they make friends with some other critter. I can't remember what kind of critter it is. And at first they're a little wary, but then they decide to just all be besties. And it was really uplifting. And That's so nice. Mm-hmm. Seems like you're in a good place then. <laughs> yeah. Do you know why I was thinking about the girl drowning herself in my morbid defense? <clears throat> is that my grandmother, my dad's mother, had recently told me, I don't know why, we were just like sitting at her kitchen table visiting, and she was like, drowning is supposed to be the most beautiful way to die. And I was like... That's what your grandma told you when you were five? That's what my grandma told me. So that's what I was thinking about. She said that when you drown, people, they say that when people drown, they see really beautiful colors. I never, I never fact-checked that, because... <laughs> I was five, and so I just took her word for it. So I was thinking about her saying that when I was walking, and so then I was trying to build a story around, like, why a five-year-old girl, which would be the only person I could relate to at that time as a five-year-old girl, would drown herself. And obviously it was terminal cancer. <laughs> I mean, it had to be. <laughs> That's amazing that you remember that so vividly. I... Yeah, no, you could totally call my grandma. I think awful. so, man. I can picture her. She's smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and she's like, drowning is the most beautiful way to die. And I was like... I could see how that could make an impression. Can I have some more cantaloupe? (laughs) When did you know you wanted to write uh, a book? When I was in Thailand. Because, and I went, I didn't go there to write about it. I went to Thailand to learn more about this refugee crisis that I'd stumbled upon on the internet. It was just totally fascinated by. And couldn't find any good information about it. And I just felt like I had had to go. And I had just graduated from grad school. Uh So, you know, like... Where'd you go to grad school? What was I doing? University of New Orleans. Oh, wow. Which is why I have Katrina issues about furniture. Right. Because I was there in 2005 during the hurricane. Anyway, so I went to Thailand. And I lived with these refugees from Burma who, you know, were on the business end of a genocide by the junta. They're this ethnic this pretty small ethnic minority and they had fled to thailand and they were just the most amazing the people that i was with they were like in their 20s and they were dudes and they were drunk a lot of the time and hot and really funny and then they would just like run back into burma and take pictures and interview people who'd been tortured and shit like that and then sneak back into thailand 
everything they were doing was totally illegal. And then sometimes they would get shot at and they would sneak back into Thailand and then they would just load all this stuff into human rights databases in case anyone ever presses charges against the Burmese government for anything that they've ever done. And that was their job. And I was like... How is the thing that nobody's ever heard about? This Nobody knows about that civil war. A little bit more people do now because Burma's been in the news lately. They've had some big changes and stuff, but, you know, nobody knew what was going on, and I thought it was such a good story, and they had such an amazing culture, these people that I was with, and I was like, I have to, I have to write a book. So it wasn't like, I would like to write a book. What would I like to write a book about? Hmm, you know, and then I brainstormed. It was like, this book, and it was like my baby, and I, like, I had to give birth to it in some form or another, so I applied for an internship. How did you, how did you land, let, let's go back for a second, how, I mean, how did you land in, in Burma? Why did you go there? Was it really, like, a, you just had an itch you had to scratch about what was happening there? You, yeah, that's really, that is really, like, the whole Was it something lame you, like, story. It's, it's not lame. Was it something that you, like, how long did you plan it for? Was it, like... You know, you're, like, Googling about Burma. Yeah, right? this is involved. This is, like, right. This story starts with Google. And I, in 2004, I went to Thailand because I just went overseas for six months and did a lot of traveling and things like that. But when I was going to Thailand that time, some random Google search had turned me up, like, deep into this Google search had turned me up on this tiny little, you know, blurb about refugee camps these refugee camps, and there were, you know, there's more than 100,000 refugees from Burma in these camps in Thailand. I was like, what? A what? You know, it just, I'd never heard of it before, and I didn't really understand what was going on, and I couldn't really, I wasn't as good at research and fact-checking then as I am now, and I couldn't really find any good information about it, so I, yeah, I just, like, planned a trip to go. That, that's it. That's really it. That's the whole story. And so, you, okay, so... And then you show up, mm -hmm. and you get taken... And they volunteer, yeah, they volunteer with an organization right. that won't really say what they do for security purposes, and they give me a ride to this house and just drop me in it, and it's got, like, 20, 24-year-old refugee dudes living in it, hiding in it more accurately, and they're like, this is your home now. <laughs> and I was like, that's great, thanks. And you were there for six weeks? Yeah. And were, like, uh, you know white gals from America coming over and living in this house a lot? Was that like a unique thing? Not in the house. They did have volunteers, not necessarily American volunteers. They had had them before, um, but Norwegians uh, were involved a lot somehow in this. I'm not really sure how, but <laughs> funding or something, I don't know. But they, yes, they had, they had had a steady stream of white gals. They didn't live in the house. I didn't find that out until almost it was time to go. They were like, usually our volunteers don't actually live in our house, you know? They, like, rent themselves their own house or, like, a hotel down the street. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> My bad. But it was good that I was there because, you know, I didn't miss anything. That probably is why I end up you know, living with, I lived with my sources in Ohio last year for this feature I was writing. I lived in their house for a month. And so I think that, and when I tell other reporters that, they're like, what? And I'm like, I wonder if that, you know, really influenced the way that, the level to which I felt I needed to be immersed and stuff in, in the future. Both of those stories are intensely personal i mean they're about these really large issues but you, the way that you tell them is entirely kind of through your own yeah experience just 
super creative nonfiction grad school stuff. I know, right? Is that um, why I can't stop talking about myself, do you think? That's a complaint, you know? That's a, a complaint that I get. Some people, I think you sort of either love that or you hate it. Like, you feel like, yes, I feel really engaged with this narrator or this totally weird issue. Because nobody gives a shit about some far-flung genocide about people they can't picture and things like that. So some people are like, this is helpful for me to have sort of an anchor that I can relate to a little bit better, you know? And whatever. And then some people are like, oh my God, would you please stop talking about yourself? (laughs) We're talking about genocide. For fuck's sake. Like, enough about you. So I I think it depends if you like that or don't like that. Have you tried... I mean, have you tried doing those... Have you thought about doing those stories without putting yourself in them? Um, I sort of, you know, it's not a device. Like I don't, it's not, it's not a scheme that I have. So when I write a story, I have the beginning and I have the end. But at some point when I need to figure out, you know, my stories are really long. So at some point when I need to figure out what's going to be in the middle, I will write down, you know, a marker of the beginning and a marker of the end and write out an outline, Mm -hmm. you know, like you were taught to in second grade. I'm like, where is this going? Okay, it goes here and then it goes here and then it goes here. In those pieces when I'm doing those outlines, there's never, you know, any point where I'm like, insert self and story about childhood here. You know, that is not a thing. It's always about the events, but then as I start talking about the events when I'm actually writing it out, it's like my reactions. A lot of my, you know, the things about me in those stories is my reactions to the people who I'm talking to. So it'll, as I'm writing them out, I remember how I felt about that kind of stuff, and then I just started blathering about it. And well, I mean, in the Burma piece in particular, like nobody knows about that. No, no one really understands how that, what the fuck is going on. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of you in there that's not directly related to this, but like, I, it feels to me like having yourself in there allows like lets people off the hook for not getting it. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a way that, like, you can't, when you read those stories about Burma and the Times, mm-hmm. like, there's a there's a level of knowledge assumed. Sure. You know? Um, but then there are other stories where, where uh, you know, like the going to work in the, what, what, is it amalgamated? Is that the? That is what we, that is the pseudonym that we picked, yeah. It's a good one. Thank you. That's a little bit different. I mean, that's not. There's not like a a, a baseline of of knowledge that that needs to get acquired there. That's you trying to sort of like get across an experience by going through it yourself. Sure, right. That was actually about me. It was right. about my experience as a worker, right? So I, I was. <laughs> the premise was based on what what my experience was, and so I could blather on myself all I wanted. But when you, yeah, the thing about. Burma, I mean, if you pretend, unless you've been studying Burma for a long time, or you live in Burma, or, you know, were the bureau chief of some Thai newspaper office or something, you don't, you didn't know what was going on before you started writing that story. And so, like, the things about me in those stories, it feels a little bit disingenuous to not have them in there, because I didn't know what was going on either. And so I admitted that I didn't know what was going on. So basically, I was learning at the same time that the readers were learning what the deal was, right? And actually, so that, you know, that piece was nominated for a National Magazine Award, and at the National Magazine Award ceremony, they give, you know, they put a picture of the spread of the story up on the 
screen and then someone reads some intro to it or like a quick summary and like the summary was about how naive I was <laughs> they were like in this piece McClellan admits that she has no idea what's going on and has <laughs> no skills as a reporter or you know something like I'm exaggerating obviously but it was something like that that was what their summary was about and I was like you guys it's 10,000 words long and I pulled out some mad expertise <laughs> in the end of that thing but the only thing that they mentioned was that I was totally clueless about what was going on in Burma when I got there amazing story by someone who doesn't understand this <laughs> Basically, the greatest red around of all time. <laughs> that is amazing. Sorry about that. That's fucked up. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so you were there for six weeks, and I take it you knew you were going to write a book about it pretty shortly after you got there. At least that that comes through in the story. Well, when I was, I felt like I needed to tell. You know, like everybody that I knew, like yeah. so. Sort of my plan. What I mean, whatever. I was twenty six. I don't know. Who knows what I was thinking? I was like, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna like tell everybody what's going on. And I don't really know how. I guess I could have formed some sort of activist group or joined the. I mean, there are lobbyists, programa lobbyists. You know, in D.C. I could have like flown to D.C. and become that kind of person, but. I'm not that kind of person, and so this was sort of how it went. The guys, actually, the refugees kept, you know, they ask you all the time, not just me, people, they ask foreigners all the time, you know, are you, are you going to tell, are you going to tell everybody, are you going to tell everybody what we said, are you going to tell everybody what I said about what's happening to me, and you're like, yeah, definitely, so what was I going to, I'm going to not do that, and, do I, and I felt like it was a legitimately good story, it's not just like, you should read this because it's important and you should learn about it. It's actually, in my opinion, a good story. Yeah, I mean, I think, but that's another part of it. I feel like that that having yourself as as the through line, it really like it really diminishes the like medicine factor with that story. <laughs> you know, like it, it doesn't it doesn't read or feel. It is a good story, but it's 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 a hard story. Like it's a hard thing. There are parts of the story that are hard to read. Yeah, you know, and. Um, I think a lot of times when people are certainly, I can, I don't need to make generalizations about other people. When I read stuff that's hard to read, like it, 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 it is kind of, it makes it inaccessible in a way. Sure. You know? Um, and I think that having yourself in there and like cracking jokes. Yeah. You know? Uh, it, again, like it lets you, I don't know, it lets you get at this thing that I think people have really struggle to get at, you know, struggle to wrap their heads around or even kind of like engage with, which is, I mean, my sense is kind of like that's sort of the issue with the thing is that people aren't really engaging with what's actually happening and kind of there's a bunch of like really uh, helpful vocabulary to sort of talk around it. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's sort of the point of my position. I'm the human rights reporter, right? Quote, unquote, that's my job. And the point when they... I'm the first one, you know, like this in at Mother Jones. So when they sort of invented this position, they specifically wanted something that was accessible and not just like a brick of research or mm -hmm. something, you know, that only a grad student or only somebody who was writing a doctorate thesis about, you know, Africa or something would read. So they wanted something that was about 
things that you should know but are horrible and too horrible for you to know, but at the same time could be accessible in a way that normal people and not just doctoral students would read them. So that was, I think that was sort of the vision. How do you get up, like, how do you get up in the morning when <laughs> your job is to write about horrible things? Like, what, what? <laughs> Where's this? Like, where's the sunshine in your life? How- you know, I go to a lot of therapy, so yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's that's that sounds like happy times. Well, you sort of you look for the hope in some. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this, but I'm I'm going to talk about it right now anyway. So the story that I'm working on right now, that's due in a week, um, is about veterans and it's about PTSD and PTSD does shit to your like interpersonal relationships that you couldn't even imagine right well a lot of people can because they have it but if you're not that guy you can't and so a lot of and this is horrible like I went to war and I fought for my country and I killed a bunch of people and now I'm at home in my house in suburbia and I can't stop thinking about killing people and also I have brain damage because I was in 47 IED blasts and so I also can't remember stuff and so I can't really tell when I'm having flashbacks if I'm really in Iraq or if I'm actually in North Carolina and you know whatever so that's awful (laughs) I mean it's really it's really awful and I am only like getting into the very surface of how awful it is but this story that I'm writing is structured as a love story it's totally a love story, like, from the beginning to the end of it, and through the middle of it, and it is so depressing, and I think it will be a little bit hard to read without crying, but it is totally a love story, and a love story is a thing that people can totally relate to. Mm-hmm. People cannot relate to soldiers if they're not soldiers. Yes, that, that so agreed. That's that's a problem, but I mean they're people. <laughs> Soldiers are people too, right? So they they have the same issues. Everybody's issue is that they're trying to find how to get along in their families and with their partners, right? Like uh-huh. it's the most universal theme in the world. And so the thing about PTSD is that it fucks with the most basic and central theme of most people's lives. And so it's the same struggle. It's just different. Mm-hmm. So that's how, I think that's how this one is going to be more accessible than... That's how you get up in the morning? <laughs> with, the, with, with hope of a love story? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does a love story, is like a love story inherently Is hopeful? it enough? I mean, I, like, is, I, was your actual answer to that question that like you're, you're trying to find some hope in these like deeply horrible things or? my ans- my actual answer to this question was the first one that i gave you which is that i go to a lot of therapy and then also you do try <laughs> to find you try to find hope and in yeah. in the stories that you do like the uganda so the uganda story like these it's about these gay activists right who could be murdered for being gay activists and they know that can happen here too and that does happen here too so i'm not going to act like you know that's just uganda's problem and the united states doesn't have hate crimes because we do obviously but there it's you know way more out of control and more police sanctioned etc so then we had these pictures of these guys of this gay couple these two guys who were like just going grocery shopping and going shopping for t-shirts and stuff together like a couple you know, 
and they let they they were like yes we want your photographer to take pictures of this like we know that this would be worth dying for like this is a cause that we care about and you know take our fucking picture looking at the label on a can of juice in a grocery <laughs> store and so we did and we you know we ran these pictures and there's I mean there's a lot of strength and resilience even in the worst stories ever I mean you do get bogged down definitely <laughs> I do by how much evil so many people are willing to perpetrate in the world, but I guess the the little beam of sunshine that you're looking for that hits me in the face in the morning is the just the the character of and the integrity of the people who are involved. I assume there's ought to be you've got to take some solace from trying to expose it too. I mean, uh, writing about these things that don't get written about very much and writing about them in a way that they certainly don't get written about very much. Uh, you gotta get some strength there too, right? Yeah, like I, mean, I do think, and that sounds so lame. I'm like, it's really important. I feel like it's important. You know, it's you're, just, the, you're a human rights reporter. You're it's my to say that. It's my conviction. I do feel like it's really important. So yeah. yes, I am definitely motivated by. I and mean, it, it's also there's something also sort of sort of obnoxious about that like I have so much conviction that I have to go do whatever but I mean you're right it is like I'm very motivated by my conviction about these things how do you pick when your beat is like everything fucked up in the world <laughs> how do you how do you find stories how do you pick what, what's the how do you find the next fucked up thing you're gonna go write about um sometimes they find you you know like when I I ended up in the Gulf for in the United States Gulf for four months covering the oil spill because I happened to be there covering some other story about the public defender's office in New Orleans when Deepwater Horizon blew up and started like spewing oil all over the place. So that happened. <laughs> and then I was just there. Yeah. And then I, you know, and then I stayed because it ended up being this enormous catastrophe obviously while I, and while I was there I met one of the cleanup workers who I met was this Indian who was from Oklahoma in this uh, he didn't actually live on the reservation the reservation areas in Oklahoma are like patchy they're very like broken up not like in Oregon or something where there's huge or Washington where there's huge pieces of them so um, and he was like, I beat people up for money because there's no law on reservations. And I was like, what's that? So, you know, <laughs> I ended up, I met that guy in a bar. Yeah. So that, you know, so then I ended up doing that. And it just sort of, so yeah, sometimes they just sort of come to you and then you pitch them and then your editors either like them or they don't. It's not very often that I've pitched something that, Monica and Claire, my editors, have been like, that is a terrible idea. But it has happened before, mm -hmm. where I'm like, here's this awful thing, and they're like, you know what, that's just an awful thing. Can you elevate not, it? Not, not awful enough. Well, not that, not that, just that it's just like, there was no other angle, right. except for, this is awful. And mm -hmm. they were like, okay, there's lots of things that are awful, and you have to have something. They still need to be good stories. Yeah, you have to have something else, not just, this is so awful. So, and I did, I did pitch one story like that and they were like, nope. So then I <laughs> moved on and, um, speaking of moving on, I, the, I want to go back to the Deepwater Horizon thing for a second because I feel like, um, I feel like everyone forgot about that shit. You mean while it was happening or today? Today. Yeah. Like, well, people don't say everyone, not people in Louisiana. 
or Florida. They are definitely it's still in their newspaper all the time. Mm. What's happening there now? Well, as much as their newspaper exists, you know, the Times Pick, New Orleans newspaper just fired yeah. whatever percentage of their staff. But their coverage was amazing. Mm-hmm. Was amazing when it was happening. And it was on the front page, you know, and half the paper every single day. And continue. I haven't been to New Orleans in a couple months. But I was just there a couple months ago. And it's still... Related stuff is still in the paper, you yeah. know, when they find big die-offs and they're still, you know, digging at the, what scientists are being funded by who and all that kind of stuff and who knew what when and everything, they're, they're not giving it up because it's, you know, it's obviously really important to them. But what happened is a lot of people lost a bunch of money. Do you and s- that's... <laughs> well, I mean, period. I, 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 it was one of those stories that I thought, um, was going to be, was going to leave more of a mark, I guess. Like, you know, like, uh, um, in the way that, like, Katrina did. You know, yeah. like, everyone has, like, a, a point of reference. Or even the Exxon Valdez. Yeah, absolutely. Even, like, that, which, I mean, that was, you know, what, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that, that, or 25 or whatever, but that, you know, that still has this touch on that, I feel like, for so I, I can't quite figure out why Deepwater didn't, ha- hasn't had that level of resonance, but... Maybe it's just like uh, a region can only have so many disasters. Yeah, right. You know, it's like you, people have Gulf Coast fatigue. Yeah, you got like a you know you've got like a bank account and you can get cashed out with your disasters or something. Or it's a product of the difference in the way the news cycle works now. Yeah, something. for sure. No story is that is that big of a story really for you know. Yeah, yeah. I guess so it's long like, of a time because it just gets the shit beaten out of it and then it's gone. You know. Right, and then you're like enough, enough of that already. Tell me about um, changing your byline. About changing my byline? Weren't, weren't you Nicole? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, nobody calls me that. And no one's I, ever called you that? My well, No, actually, nobody has ever called me that because my parents and my parents, my mom especially, calls me Nick, mm-hmm. and so does my sister. And since grad school, and that's what a lot of people call me, and then when I was really little... And then maybe through high school, a lot of people call me Nikki, which my parents gave me when I was really little, which is terrible. It's a, yeah, no, offen- no offense to anybody who's like <laughs> listening to this and was like, my name is Nikki and I love it. I'm really happy for those people. Nikki I would not suit. Hate it. No, you're right. You're sitting next to me and you can see that yeah. that is not appropriate. No, and I don't know why my parents. Also, my middle name is Brianna. So my parents just like were, I don't know, you know. They smoke a lot of pot and whatever. So I, you know, people, I have a great big fat grandpa. I mean, he's dead now, but I have a great big fat grandpa. Southern, you know, black suits with purple shirts unbuttoned and chest hair and gold chains. And his name's Mac. And everybody called him Mac, you know, Grandpa Mac. And that's, you know, that was my nickname. And so I changed my, because you're associated, once you actually start writing, you know, you're associated, your byline and your, what people call you in real life becomes the same thing. Right. So it just, all my friends already call me that. And I was using what was on my birth certificate, even though it was not really my name anymore. So I changed it. But there's also, I mean, there's another element of going by Mac, right? Which is that, uh, people probably assume you're a dude a lot. Yeah, well that wasn't something I was going for. Right. I, I mean, I it, it does happen it does happen occasionally, but not not that often really? actually. No, because 
I guess if the, you like read the first line of most of your stories, it's pretty clear. Right, or the internet. You know, like there's pictures of your face next to all the stuff right. that you do a lot now, and if somebody Googled you, like, you know, your picture would come up and stuff like that. So it doesn't happen that often to me that people confuse me for a dude. I wasn't, really, and even if they did, like, I don't care. So that somebody brought that up to me when I was changing my byline as a thing that maybe I should be concerned about, but I was like, who cares? Yeah. And also, it, it really doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. It is very... It, it's, maybe it's happened, like, three times. So it was, more, it was more about just kind of, like, getting to, uh... Getting close to, like, what you're actually calling. You yeah, know, so. I mean, otherwise, you would be... I would have been calling you Nikki all day. Right, and I would be... I would... Because, you know, nobody that I know in my... Nobody I hang around with calls me that. I would feel like you were talking to somebody else, you know, and you were not talking to me. And then I would be like, no, call, I know what my byline says, but despite that, call me something totally different. And that just seems like a pain in the ass. Totally. So, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, despite what it says there. So how long How long were you fact-checking? You were... You went to Burma before you, you got the job fact-checking at Mother Jones. Mm-hmm. So yeah. how, how long were you fact-checking for before you inaugurated the human rights reporter position? Um, I was a fact-checker for four months, and then I was hired for as For the a, record here, I, I can't remember if we were recording when this is on before, but you were talking all kinds of shit how, about how you had learned like the ins and outs of all fact-checking. You were only a fact-checker for four months? I know a lot about... How long... Have you ever been a fact-checker? No, I, but I wasn't claiming well, to know... Well, so what do you know? <laughs> I just wasn't claiming to know everything about it. Most people I know have done that job did it for like two years. You can know a lot about fact-checking in four months. I, that's The reason I did it for four months is because that's how long our fact-checking internship cycle lasted at that time. Now it's six months. Okay, but you're not but mad it, it used to be... <laughs> I'm really mad. It used to be four months. So uh, I went through one cycle, and then you can re-up as a fellow if you're mm-hmm. doing a good enough job um and so and obviously I was so they <laughs> offered me I was gonna stay on as a fellow but then they needed a copy editor it turned out randomly and I'm a grammar spaz so they ended up hiring me for that which is you know pays marginally but still better than being an intern so I became a person on the staff and then spent all my free time writing a book proposal and trying to get a book deal because I was nobody and it's really hard to do and things like that. So I think I was a copy editor for... This job started January 1 of 2010. So I was a copy editor for like two years. And while I was a copy editor, I wrote a couple pieces for the magazine mm-hmm. and uh, just tried to get the whole book thing together. And then finally, you know, I had galleys in some, at some point in 2009, I had galleys and the deal, and it was coming out and whatever, and I asked my editors if they wanted to read this book that I wrote, and they were like, sure, we'll look at it, and then they gave me a new job. Do you always want to write about this stuff? I mean, do you, it, it's horrible, awful things going to be your no. beat forever? No, I don't think so. What would you like to write about? What would I like to write about? Well, that's partly um, I'm drawn to things like that. And, you know, when I get involved in some sort of... I read something about some story that I feel like isn't being told enough. And then I'm like, well, I have to... No, I have to go right away. And it's usually something horrible. <laughs> um, but, so have you I had have, that urge with anything that wasn't horrible? Not lately, but, you know, it's partly once you're in it. That's 
sort of where your brain lives, you know, that's sort of like, this, it's sort of like the things that I'm, that I'm looking for and the things that I'm immersed in now. So I definitely need to, I need to branch out a little bit, you know, it's like, and my job at the magazine is still, my beat is the same. And as long as that's my beat, that is the kind of stuff that I'm going to, you know, that I'm going to write about that you keep calling horrible. But Sorry. Is there, a, is there like a better term? I no, use? you're right. It's horrible. So um, there are a couple other stories I wanted to ask about. One one was the the warehouse story, mm-hmm. um, and for anyone who's listening who hasn't read it, you went and worked in like it, if it wasn't an Amazon shipping place, it was an Amazon like shipping place, right? Um, which was this massive, massive warehouse in a nameless state. Uh, I made me never want to order anything off the internet ever again. See, that's what we were going for. Right? Do you order anything off the internet? Um, I did order something off the internet. It was a hamper that you put your dirty clothes in after I got after I had already done that story. Well, because I was trying to figure out where I would get a hamper. Is that a regional thing? Do only people from Ohio call those hampers? No, those are hampers. Okay, so I was looking for. People tell me that most people don't say pop, so sometimes I'm never sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, pop is a regional. I know that now because you didn't know that. No, they don't teach you you that in Ohio. Like, this is what we call it. (laughs) Don't say that. Don't say that to other people. No, they don't say that. So I thought maybe hampers was something. Anyway, so I needed a hamper, and I buy. You know, I go. I very dutifully and happily because my grocery store is adorable. You should check it out when you leave if you want. But it's wildly expensive and you know small and family owned and I buy all my groceries there and I you know I go to the bookstore and I I do things like that and I I don't the point of the story was not you should stop shopping on the internet because that is not going to happen nobody is going to destroy the online shopping on the internet it's awesome it is the best thing ever you don't have to do anything it's so easy and when you can't find a hamper I don't have a locally owned hamper store in my neighborhood, or as far as I could find within, like, five neighborhoods of here. So I was like, fuck it. I just ordered off the internet. Like, what choice do I have? Where am I going to get a hamper? I was even, because I was like, I could just use a bucket. I was like, oh my god. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just ordering a hamper. I could, just the, go, I could just go to the bucket store and get a <laughs> Well, the point of the story, you know, was not boycott shopping on the internet because that's not reasonable. Nobody is going to do that. People are going to order stuff off the internet. The they point just is... They shame while they do. Well, no, the point is that the people who run those companies, they don't, they really don't have to do it like that. They make so much money that that's not necessary for it to be torture for the people who work there. So the point is, you know, the more people know, the more people know you're torturing people, the more you might have to stop torturing people at some point. So, I mean, that was the point of the story. There, I have no illusions that, you know, people are going to stop shopping on the internet. That's not... That's not the goal. The goal is for the people who are running those companies to stop being such assholes. Right. Needlessly. Because they have so much money that they, they, you know, you don't have to be that much of an asshole. Just be less of an asshole. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, they they could be a fraction less assholish. And it sounds like life in those factors would be... It could make, factors, a, big, could make a big difference. Warehouse, yeah, it could make a big difference. And that would make a really big difference to people who spend 80 hours a week there. You know, like, come on. So between these stories, like, do you give yourself time off to, like, decompress a little bit? I do, yeah. I do now. I didn't used to, and then I paid for it dearly. So now... How'd you pay for it? I mean, I have PTSD. <laughs> it's pretty bad. And so some days I, some days I can't. 
So, I mean, to answer your question, like, how do you get out of bed? Some days I can't. Mm-hmm. And it depends on it depends on the day. And I have good days and bad days. But, uh, yeah, now I definitely take longer periods between stuff than, than I used to. So that I have lots of time to process and sort of move through whatever. Or I turn things... I mean, I turn down... A story for I don't know if I'm supposed to say because maybe they signed it to somebody else. So this ma- this pretty fancy magazine called me and they were like, um, "Do you want to go to Iraq?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> I don't." Because at this point, like it's. Is this after you started working on the soldier story? This was like two months ago. Yeah. And I was like, "No," because I'm too. I have like a long list of like and a big stack of pictures of horror right in my brain yeah. and I just you know the thing about when you have PTSD is like you're one of the bigger problems adjustment problems that you have is um, that you're hyper vigilant when you shouldn't be so you know you, we could be sitting on a couch and my body is totally convinced that I'm about to get murdered and like people hear that they're like oh, they, you're a vet you have PTSD and you're hyper vigilant but it doesn't really mean anything to most people what it feels what it really feels like to be hyper vigilant and it's awful so like if you were in a house and there was a murderer in it and you knew it like and it was dark and there were no lights and you had to sort of like make your way around this house like think about what your nervous system would feel like. Like, that, you know, sometimes if you get startled in the middle of the night, it's that sort of thing. If you felt like that for hours and hours at a time, for no reason, I mean, it's exhausting and it's awful. So that's what it's like, and that's a thing that happens. So it's, it's hard to unlearn once you, you know, once you've sort of gotten into it, it's really hard to unlearn and so that you can just, like, be a person who's calm and sitting on a couch and that won't just, like, come over you with like no notice or whatever i'm fine right you, now you see what you're doing all right btw oh yeah i'm great but the point is i don't need to go to iraq right now mm-hmm. <laughs> in conclusion it's not that it's not the best time for me to go and so i told them i was like you know i don't i don't think this is a good idea and they were like well it's not like the super war zone part and i was like what part is it yeah. it's like the vacation yeah. part yeah. where you're going, to, you're going to that rock beach people are just like right hanging out and there's like a lot of clubs or whatever so and and also it was i'm not totally sure but i think the story had something to do with spending a lot of time with people who've been like horribly tortured or something and I was like you know what I'm not up for it and two years ago I never would have said that if anybody would have given me any horrible thing I'd been like yes I'm on a plane like tomorrow but you know I think I have learned a lot more about my limits now and so I was like I'm sorry I can't well, I guess maybe that's like I know I asked you this already but maybe this is actually what I was trying to ask is like you know can you can you like uh can you safely keep writing these stories forever and ever like is, is that right, like, like what's the limit yeah is there like do you have like a can you can you run out of what it must take like what you must go through to write these stories can you like run out of whatever that is you can and people do people do all the time uh that's and you'll and you'll hear that from I'm really not old enough to talk like this, right? I'm 32, but you'll hear that from older reporters who will be like, "Yeah, sure. In my youth, yes, I would have done this, this, and this story, and I did that, that, and that, and I can't do that anymore." It does. There is definitely a limit to what you can do, and that's sort of the million dollar question. Like, I don't, you know, you don't know. You you sort of have to test. 
right. where the limits are. And did you agonize go. at all over whether or not to let Anne Friedman publish that piece in Good? Uh, well, you say let like she was trying to convince me, and I was reluctant, but then I gave in. But that's of course not how. I mean, I pitched that story to her, so. We, I mean, sort of. We just were sort of talking about it because I, I know her, and I was like, here's this thing. Um, yes, I knew that that was not going to go well. I am surprised at how well it didn't go. Like, I mean, I knew it was going to be bad, but I knew it was going to be that bad. Yeah. yeah. As a person who does a lot of horrible things, you know, I have like, I'm like, ah, this would probably be horrible. But it was even, to me, the level of horrible was surprising. For, for anyone who's listening who hasn't read that, can you just kind of, like, give the brief synopsis? Because I'm not going to try. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so when you have... One of the first things to go for a lot of trauma victims is, uh, is a normal sex life, basically. But it's the last thing anybody ever talks about, right? So nobody would ever... Soldiers, certainly, are not going to be like, you know what my problem is? Intimacy. I can't... <laughs> And I'm having a hard time emotionally connecting when I have intercourse. You know, nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah. So even sexual abuse victims who um, sort of are the ones who get studied for it the most because it seems like the most obvious connection to people, even though any kind of PTSD, car accidents, even like war, all kinds of stuff, fucks up your sex life. Not everybody's, but a lot of people's. So uh, mine included. And so I basically, I, I wrote an essay about it. I- how did it go so bad? Like, what what was so bad? Well, I had somehow not anticipated so many, and I shouldn't say so many, because, you know, when one person... Do people ever write really mean things about you on the internet for any reason? Yeah, it's happened, I guess. Okay. Like, even when one person does that, it it's seems so, so sh- Exactly. It's so yeah. Right, so when I say everybody, I'm talking about, yeah. like, three people. Yeah. <laughs> like... Some, I'm talking about a, a blogger or two bloggers or, you know, whatever, but who happened to write for prominent sites in some cases. Like, you know, so I, I hadn't anticipated that anyone would say, and I don't know why because I, I know better, but that uh, my problem was that I was a whiny white bitch and truly I'm just afraid of black men. And, like, this whole issue is not, the, like, the case is not that trauma victims have intimacy issues the case is that i am the world's biggest racist like i really somehow had not anticipated anybody saying that or you know the only reason i was doing this was for glory or something as though i would you know spend my time and my energy writing about violence against poor black women in another country in order to be famous because that's an issue that anybody gives a shit about you know like right yeah well i mean that's been the the Route to worldwide fame for many people. Right, I got a. I have so much money now because <laughs> I tried to expose that issue. So it was, you know, I felt like I was. I mean, I know that I'm not a bad person, and my intentions are good. My intentions, you know, I had pretty serious intentions actually about exposing this rape problem that these people were having. So. You know, having going in with that and then the way that it can affect, you know, just the way that it can affect other, you know, people around and just the way that trauma affects 
intimacy and things like that is just like, I, I mean, I think it's a really, really important issue. And yeah. I knew that some people were going to be like, whore, and that did happen. Right. But then I, somehow I had not anticipated so many people saying that I was a racist. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. fuck those assholes. But w- what was the reaction on the other end? Did you hear from people who, 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 who that rang true with? Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the reason that I, part of the reason why I was like, you know why I need to write this is because you can't find anything about it. There are only very, very specific niche, you know, uh, publications, and you have to be really looking hard to find people who are talking about n- not being able to have sex or what happens when you have sex. Because the stuff that happens when you have sex, if you have PTSD, is like fucking crazy sometimes. Like, seriously. You could have, a, like, Imagine if you were inside somebody and then you had a flashback and you thought you were in a different country. It's very disconcerting for all partners. <laughs> yeah, for so every, everyone. Everybody. Partners. Everybody is disconcerted. Your cat, like, <laughs> everybody is totally freaked out when that happens. And that is, it's a thing and it happens to a lot of people. And so, yeah, I got like 9,000 emails from people who were like, oh my God. And you know, the ironic thing about this is that everybody that happens to thinks they're the only person. Right. Most you know, poignantly, at the moment, we have half a million vets, right, who just got back from war. A lot of them are in their 20s, and they have wives, and they come back to wives, and they try to have sex with them, and shit goes horribly wrong, but, like, nobody will talk about this. So, one of my sources, actually, for the story that I'm working on right now, he uh, was one of the people who emailed me in the aftermath of that story and was like... Um, you know, he was a Marine, so he was like, Semper Fi, dude, keep your head up, people just don't understand, but I hear you, like, I can't, I can't touch my wife, and, you know, it just, and you can't talk about it in the group therapy that the VA gives you, you know, you get a bunch of Marines in a room, and they're not gonna talk about it. I, I, I've been in, I've been in those rooms, it's, it's impossible to imagine that conversation happening there. Yeah, it's just like, it wouldn't happen, and it ruins when you're, you know, when your family relation, it can ruin your relationships if you don't know how to talk about it, and if you feel like you're the, you're like, well, I'm the only person this is happening to, so obviously I'm insane, and it's just me, and you don't want to tell anyone, and the level of shame is so incredibly high, and so, yeah, I got a lot of emails from people like that. And that guy in particular, um, you know, his, so they, they were having all these marriage problems and that happens a lot. And then people end up getting divorced. And according to the VA's own congressional testimony, by and large, the reason that we're seeing all these suicides, most of the suicides of the soldiers, which if you've been reading the stats about those lately are just like off the charts, are immediately preceded by breakups. Really? Yeah. And this guy, this source of mine, actually, this Marine, he, uh, he killed himself, like, a couple, like, a couple months into our correspondence, like, an hour after the last email that he wrote me. Holy shit. So, I stand by that it's, it's an important issue, (laughs) it's a bigger issue than people, it affects, and it's not just, like, vets, it's, like, people with all kinds of, like, trauma backgrounds and stuff like that. How did you find out that he killed himself? Um, his wife emailed me, actually, his, and she said, you know, they were, I'm not actually positive what state of separation they were in at that point, but she emailed me and she said that, you know, it came from his email address, so I got this email from him and I was like, oh, hey, email from that guy, so I opened it and it was like, hey, this is actually that guy's wife and I know that he'd been talking to you and I know that was really helpful for him, so... Thank you for that, um, but he's dead. 
and I've been ch- I check his email sometimes and I just wanted to send you a note and let you know so that's how I found out and then I googled it and you were working on the the story that's that you're still working on you had already started that one um yeah I was definitely gathering I wasn't actually <laughs> I wasn't memorizing chunks of it in my head yet yeah. but I was yeah I was gathering a lot of string so and now you you've you've got the beginning and you've got the end in your head. Yeah, and I'm like halfway through the middle. Amazing. So yes, I'm doing awesome work on that. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, that seems like a pretty natural place to to stop. So really, on on uh, how much I'm looking forward to reading your story. Okay. Which is going to be awful and gut wrenching. Right, but, but it's well, going to be a love story. And there will be Mac McClellan jokes, so it'll be good. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I hope you like it. Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I host this thing with Evan Ratliff of The Atavist and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Thanks to Mac McClellan for taking the time and for giving me whiskey before my red eye back to New York. If you want to read any of the stories that Mac and I talked about, they're all in the show notes. Longformpodcast.tumblr.com. If you want something entirely different, check out the new story from The Atavist at atavist.com. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.